0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald's Miami Marlins podcast, now also a weekly segment on Slam Radio's Miami Herald Sports Hour on Sirius XM. I'm Jordan McPherson, Marlins beat writer for the Miami Herald. We have a jam-packed episode today. We're going to break down the Marlins' first road series of the season against the Mets, and boy, is there a lot to talk about. We'll dive into the starting rotation's um, strong um, start to the season, and then we'll take questions that we solicited from fans on Twitter. And joining us this week to help sort all this out is El Extrabasse's Daniel Alvarez. Danny, first off, how are you? And thank you for being on time this week.
1: <laughs> I knew you were going to say something about it, um, but I'm really happy to be here once again, Jordan. Uh, it's awesome to you know, follow you, be there with you at the press box, and also talk baseball and talk about the Marlins. You, you said that we have a lot to talk about, about the first uh, road series. And it's crazy how much we can talk about a two-game series, right?
0: Yeah, two-game games, 2 game series over four days. Well, two games and nine pitches. And exactly. nine pitches, exactly. So let's just jump right into it. So the Marlins' first road series against the New York Mets. Thursday, game one. Tie game two to two. Walk-off hit-by-pitch with the bases loaded that shouldn't have been a hit-by-pitch. Day two, an off day in the middle of the series. Day three, game two, the Marlins shut out the Mets with Jacob deGrom on the mound. And day four, a game starts with pouring rain in in Queens at Citi Field. They get nine pitches in and then a two-hour rain delay, and then they go, yeah, we're suspending this when the game really should not have even started in the first place. Let's just start from the beginning and we'll move our way chronologically. That first game, that final call with Ron Culpa calling Michael Conforto getting grazed by a pitch by Anthony Bass, a slider inside that was in the strike zone, should have been strike three, second out of the ninth inning. He calls it a hit by pitch. They can't review the location. They can only review if it wasn't actually, if Conforto was hit, which he was, despite the fact that he leaned into the pitch. Just... Danny, your reaction when you saw everything as that unfolded in the ninth?
1: Well, it was disappointing. The whole nine inning. First of all, starting with Anthony Bass giving up the homer to uh, Jeff McNeil. Right, he didn't have a, a hit until that moment of, of the season, and he he tied again with a with a, with a solo shot. After that, what happened with the whole comforter situation was disappointing because the umpire, um, he changed the decision like quickly, in, in yeah. a couple of seconds, after he said, okay, that it was a strike, he said, oh, no, it, it was a hit by a pitch, and then you go to first, and they, they didn't apply the rule the right way, and I understand that, at the, you know, at, at the beginning, you can you can have an error, because that happens, I mean, you're, you're we're human, and they, we can make mistakes, but what I didn't like is that they didn't get together after to say, like, hey, what did you guys see? or at least from, from Ron Culpa's perspective, like, hey, like at least, you know, asking the second base umpire, like, hey, what did you see in in that pitch? Because he he's in front of home plate and he can see, you know, the whole play uh, unfolded. So it was really weird at that time. Disappointing end for the Marlins. I'm sure uh, the Mets, of course, they won the game, but Comfort, so I can really feel that after what we saw on the, on the press conference, he didn't feel that good. Uh, but again, it's one way to to win a game, and they, they will take it. Of course, they will take it from the Marlins' perspective. I think they were going to lose anyway. Uh, Anthony Bass was having a, a really bad time. It, still, if it was a strike, it was going to be bases loaded with Pete Alonso at the plate.
0: Yep, Pete so, but also with two outs. So the with two players, outs, exactly. Like you, you, don't, you don't know what can happen yeah. next,
1: but the situation was already complicated for for the Marlins, and that's uh, something that they needed to address at the time. Their their bullpen situation, especially in the ninth inning, and I think think they did it perfectly. Uh, Forty eight hours later, having Jimmy Garcia pitching in the ninth and, and getting a, a clean inning to to beat the Mets on, on Saturday.
0: Yeah, but to go back to the the call that ended the game. Yes. The Marlins were not playing perfect baseball, but again, neither were the Mets. The Mets were 0 for six with runners in scoring position. And with two outs, even if it is Pete Alonso there with the bases loaded, if Anthony Bass locates another pitch, like he did with the Conforto pitch, which was called against him, you go into extra innings. You were at the point where for the Marlins perspective of it was the pitcher spot would be the runner on second, which we have the extra inning spot with. Lewis Brinson was still on the bench. You have one of your better guys on the base paths who you could have used as a pinch runner on second base. Again, assuming this game, the game did end up being tied after nine and going into extras. You have Lewis Brinson at second. You would have a chance for a bunt situation, to get a runner on third, and then who knows what would happen. But the fact that the game was decided without the Mar- Marlins having the chance to decide to have the decision in their hands, win or lose, just the fact that it was decided without them being able to have the opportunity to, to win it or lose it in their own hands.
1: Exactly. Just that's, the,
0: that's the tough part of that loss to swallow.
1: Yeah. It's it's hard to, to digest, right? Because um, you, you never know um, and you don't know what could have happened in, in that situation. And you said, okay, like if I'm going to lose the game, you know, beat me because of I really hit you or because I gave up a walk, you got a hit or a homer or a wild pitch or a pass ball or whatever or if I win I don't care if we, if we have the straining rule that Brandon Kinsler still thinks is stupid or which is, <laughs> which is fair or you know if whoever comes next hit a home hits a home run or, or something but um, in, in that specific situation I think that the um the umpires have to get it right and I mean the umpires in New York uh, that are viewing the play in from so many angles, different angles, they can say like okay like we can make an exception here because the game is on the line. If it happens in the third inning or fourth inning, I don't care because you you have, you still have plenty of time to to make up and, and, and score some runs. but in the ninth inning you're deciding the game and the game is tied with bases loaded in the ninth. <laughs> so I mean you need, you need to do something there and, and there are uh, a couple of things that still has to be changing in, in this game. Uh, in the rules, especially in that situation, I mean, how is that play not reviewable? I know it's a judgment call, but in that situation, you have to review it, man.
0: Yeah, and what's going to be interesting is, let's just say hypothetically, down the road, Mets are in a playoff hunt. They're one game, half game, half game away from making the playoffs. Are we going to be actually looking back to what happened on Thursday and going, "This happened. Remember how this how this unfolded yeah. in this game that yeah. could have gone either way." Potentially yeah. could impact something down the road.
1: If, if you're in September, you, you can point out to plenty of games because you already have, let's say, 140, 150 games uh, in your pocket. But when you're starting the season that way, it's remember, it's only the first week, or they were completing the first week of the season. You really think about that game, and you go all the way back to April where, oh, let's see what happened here. You know, the Ron Culpa game is the way we're going to call it. Because the Mets can be in, in, the, in the playoffs by right, one game, but what if the Marlins uh, fall short you know, one game? That's, you know, that's going to be tough. And, yes, we, we can talk about the Marlins as a potential playoff team because they were there last year, so why why not, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And then we saw on Saturday again these days get mixed up, especially with that Friday off day, game two yeah. of the series. You see Trevor Rogers go toe-to-toe with Jacob Degrom. Arguably the best pitcher in baseball, Trevor throws six shutout innings, strikes out ten. The Marlins get a home run from Jazz Chisholm off Jacob Degrom, and we really see the somewhat close thing to a complete game effort from this team against the best pitcher in baseball. And that game to me was a just in the mental in the back of my head. I think the Marlins responded from the way that they had to take the loss on Thursday and show that they can compete against some of some of the best guys out there. I mean, we saw them hold their own against Jacob deGrom there.
1: Yeah. When when you have a guy like Jacob deGrom, you can win the game, you know, in, in two ways. One is deGrom having a really bad day and which he didn't, one, which is very rare. When he didn't have one, he was near I mean, he was almost perfect. He was almost almost perfect that that afternoon. Or everything goes Perfect on your on your side, and that's exactly what happened for the Marlins. When when we, or I say we, because in Extra Base we cover plenty of teams, not only the Marlins, mainly the Marlins, but we we cover plenty of topics. When when we talk about uh, lack of offensive support for the ground, we always have to to be fair and see what happened on the other side. And Trevor Rogers was um, really really good. Like he showed what he can do in a in a major league game in a major league team, and at, the, at this at this level, it's not new because last year we saw him dominating the Mets. This is a whole different lineup with Francisco Lindor there, of course, but he pitched really good and he bounced back from that uh, rough start that he had against the Cardinals in in, in Marlins Park, which it it was only a, a a bad first inning. Then after that, he pitched three really good innings, but he he was. You know, out of gas because that first inning was pretty long. I mean, I, I we we all thought that he was not gonna make it through a first inning. He did, but then he had to pitch only four innings, four innings because of the uh, pitch count that he had at that point. So, if you had any doubt with uh, Trevor Rogers, I mean, I think those doubts were all answered Saturday afternoon because he pitched really good.
0: No doubt about it, especially after we saw how good he was in spring. I mean, spring training numbers, spring training numbers, but just the confidence he had, the conviction he had. And Trevor specifically is just a microcosm of what the rotation has been like just in general. I mean, even without Eliezer Hernandez after he got hurt three and in, two innings into the season, with even without Sixto Sanchez, who we're still hoping to see at some point before the All Star break, which that might be even out of concern. The Marlins starting pitching has been among the best in baseball. I mean, through Saturdays, heading into Sunday set of games. Marlin's starting pitching 2.01 ERA, second best in baseball behind only the twins. Uh opponents are only hitting 135 against Marlins starters, the lowest mark in Major League Baseball. Marlins starters through the first their first eight games, none of them have been have given up more than two earned runs in a given start. That's the best start in Marlins history. The previous best, according to the pregame notes given to us by the PR staff, was six games in 2005. And then you just look at some of the more analytical analytic stuff, 32.3% of pitches thrown by Marlins starters have either been called strikes or swings and misses. That's the sixth best mark in baseball. Trevor Rodgers and Sandy Alcantara specifically are both in the top 15 in that category among every starting pitcher who's made at least two starts so far this year. That's just incredible to think about because we've talked about the youth, yet the talent that they have, and to see it all pay, playing out there so early. That's the best time this Marlins' team could have gotten to start, to start the That's, season.
1: For sure, 100%, and, and you were spot on in everything you, you mentioned. Um, I, I still think and, and I'm only worried about how, how long they can go. During a 162 game season, because we all know that they're having uh, innings limit, maybe except from Sandy, that, who is the only one that has been really close to 200 innings. He did it in 2019 with 197 innings. Uh, he could have gone 200, but of course that was his first full year in the majors, and, and we know everything that that happened that year. Uh, he was pretty solid though. Um, that's that's the only thing that worries me about the about the Marlins, but for. I mean, from what we're watching, I'm I'm not surprised. I know you're not surprised either because we saw how good these young arms are and what they're able to to do. And I always think about what Mickey Ro has been saying for, for weeks now, that he can put this or, uh, rotation against any other rotation in the big leagues because the, he, he knows how talented they are. And especially being on the NL East, facing the Nationals so many times, the Mets so many times. Even the Braves, with good pitching now, with Soroka and Freed and Anderson and Charlie Morton and all of those guys, um, you know how, how how good they can be. And they have the talent to be one of the best rotations in the game. They are one of the best rotations in the game right now. Of course, we only have a, a week and, and two, three days of, of season so far. But uh, they can they can compete against anyone. Of course, they're going to have rough and, and bad stars. They still have to face... Uh, rough teams like uh, the, uh, the Atlanta Braves uh, or now in during the season you're going to the Central to face the Cardinals or you go to the West to face the Padres and, and the Dodgers and they have pretty good lineups and you're going to face the Yankees and you're going to face the Red Sox and you're going to face um, the Blue Jays or the Tampa Bay Rays. But they have been really good so far and I'm not surprised at all because they're really talented.
0: Yeah, and with the rotation uh Sandy specifically, from your perspective, Danny, when the Marlins traded for him and you start you started to see him begin to blossom during that 2019 season where he did make every star. He threw through 197 some odd innings, made the all-star, made the all-star game for the Marlins. Did you envision Sandy evolving into <clears throat> excuse me, evolving into the person that he is? Just that increased confidence, that just off the field part of of his game, that mental side of his game, because there were a lot of doubts. I'll be the first to admit that I wasn't sure if he'd be able to take that next step mentally because we know know the stuff that he has. But to see him starting to lock in toward the end of last season and these first couple starts this season, did you envision or did you think he would be able to take that next step?
1: I I do, Jordan, and the reason I – always believe that is because i had the chance to talk to sandy um for plenty of time remember he's dominican and venezuelan so we can uh communicate in 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 spanish uh and i and mention with with that said i know how hard he's been working to get better you know speaking english and the offer that he's making i don't remember when was the last time you guys had to use uh louis durante the interpreter from from the marlins to to talk to sandy and that, you know, that tells you how how much effort he's putting into, and, and that re- I really uh, admire that, and I also respect every Latin player or non-American player that prefers to use the, the interpreter. It doesn't matter if you're Dominican, Venezuelan, Japanese, or, or whatever. Um, but I I've been watching Sandy working closely in in that side on that side, and being more mature every single year, and. Every time you, you talk to him, you you can you can feel that you see something different, the way he talks or the topics he's he's talking about. And I remember asking Donnie at the beginning of, of the spring of spring training, I think it was Sandy's second start, like what are you what are, what is he seeing on Sandy's uh, mental aspect? And he said that he he's a clearly more mature as a pitcher and and, and as a person as well, and and that's something really important because Sandy now understands it. Uh, I mean, he under, he understood that he he has he he wants to be a leader, and he knows what it what it takes to be a leader. And he's not a, a thrower anymore. He's a he's a pitcher now, that, and he can mix with the fastball, uh, with the sinker, with the slider as well, and with the changeup. And when he's when he's able to use his whole uh, arsenal, he he can be. As good as as good as anyone in the game, but now he knows when to throw those pitches, and I think uh, the way he's been preparing for each start is the key for, for for that success and learning from previous starts. I mean, if if you ha- if you see a bad start from Sandy, now in 2021, I I feel that for the next start, he can be really good because he knows what he did, you know, wrong. In, in the previous start and he can learn from it. And that's something uh, that I I like uh, very much from, from Sandy. And, and that's why I think he's going to be uh, one of the good and, and great pitchers of his generation.
0: Yeah. I mean, my personal takeaway for him was when he was named the opening day starter in 2020, after the <laughs> shutdown for the sport and the start of summer 2.0 Mel Steinmeier Jr. on the Marlins' announcement for it basically said, "Yeah, Sandy wants to be the leader. He wants to be the ace, but does he really know what that no? Does he really know what that means to be the ace?" And then when he became the opening day starter this year, and I asked him about just being the leader, and he gave an insightful answer about the performance, not just being about him, about being how he can, how he can spread knowledge to the rest of the rotation, the younger guys who are coming up. And how he basically became a mentor at 6 Sanchez once spring training started. And really learning the value of, excuse me, wow, sorry about that. Uh, Just how he was able to realize that he has has the ability to have an impact far beyond when he's on the mound every five games. That he needs to be that guy who's basically getting in guys' faces when things aren't going right. He needs to be one of those guys in the clubhouse who steps up and becomes a vocal guy, which from his first couple of years, he really wasn't that. But yeah. you see the confidence in him now, and you see him understanding everything, like you said, that goes on in that preparation phase in between those four in, in those four days in between starts, and it's really starting to show with him, and it's it's a refreshing sight to see.
1: Yeah, it's it's when when you talk to him, uh, you, you don't see a, a cocky or an, or an arrogant guy. You see a confident guy which is very, very different. It's not like, yeah, I'm going to be good or I'm good because I uh, want to show up or, or something like that. It's it's because he, he feels it and, and he knows it and, and he knows his potential and, and he really uh, did everything he needed to do to, be, to, to become the leader of this uh, ball club. I mean, when when you have the, the responsibility to be the mentor of, of a guy like Sixto Sanchez, it's because you're doing something good uh, beyond what you're doing on the field. It's not only because you're throwing the ball well, it's because you're doing something good off the field that makes you a a real and a good leader. And that's what I'm seeing from, from Sandy and and what I really like.
0: Yeah. And now to quickly wrap up this Mets series with the two hours, almost two and a half hours to throw nine pitches, which again, we talked about this at length over, over text before, before we even started the podcast, just of, what the Mets were thinking. Because, again, the Mets are the home team, so they were the ones who made the final judgment call about whether or not to start the game. It was raining in New York, in Queens, at Citi Field, from at least 9.30 a.m. onward. It lightened up enough about 15 minutes before first pitch to try to see if they can get something in, but maybe three minutes before first pitch, right when they finished with the meeting at home plate, with Donnie and Luis Rojas and the umpires, it just started downpouring again. And it got to the point where it's like, why are they doing this? Especially considering it's the first of three trips to New York for the Marlins. Yeah. Both of the other trips that the Marlins have going back to New York, again, granted they're both in the last month of the year, both the Marlins and the Mets had an off day the day before the series. Yeah,
1: that's, that's something that for me makes absolutely no sense. I mean, why do you have a day of in the same in the same series i mean the same series just play that game on friday and and that's it because i mean you can see a weather report and you can see from friday that it's gonna rain on on sunday i mean you 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 can't see that of course I mean the possibilities or the probabilities are maybe get, they, they can get higher or, or lower. But, I mean, you can see that, Wait, oh, hey, man, there's a real chance, uh, you know, for rain on Sunday. Let's play on Friday if, if, I, if we have no game because that has happened before. And that's why in, in baseball, you, you see so many opening series uh, in the, f- the first week of the season with a day off on Friday, especially if the season started on a Thursday. Because if you are not able to play on Thursday, okay, then you can make that game on, on, on Friday. But that, of course, didn't happen. And, and I don't know, I, I think Donny outmanaged uh, Luis Rojas because why Rojas sent Marcus Stroman to the mound to throw nine pitches. Now he lost Stroman for, for five games and he only threw nine, nine, nine pitches. I mean, poor Marcus, because I, I mean, the guy really wants to pitch every every day, not every five days. Every day he wants to pitch out there. And now he lost one of his best starters for, for a week. I mean, for, for four or five days.
0: Yeah, and now the Marlins will be making up that game on August 31st, which is their next trip up to City Field. That game, from where it got where it was suspended, which was one out, yeah. runner on first base, because Corey Dickerson had a ground ball single. And honestly, let's just point it out there. If the Marlins' season goes sideways, Corey Dickerson may not even be there to be on first base when that game picks up again on August 31st.
1: Or the guy that, that was hitting... Uh, Jesus Aguilar, we we don't know if he's gonna be with the Marlins in oh. on, on August thirty first. I mean, yeah. we we don't know, and and it's it's really a shame what what happened today in in New York, um, and we have to 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 see what happens. That, that's gonna be interesting, and that's a rule that I I, un, I understand that they they had it for last year because of the whole COVID situation. We still we're still on, on a a global pandemic and all of that. But if the game is on the, on the first inning, I mean, restart the game. I mean, why? <laughs> like, why? Like, make the exception because it's the first game and it's only three batters. I mean, come on.
0: Yeah. And especially, so it'll be August 31st. That game that was suspended on Sunday will be a full nine inning game. And then the game that was originally scheduled for August 31st will be a seven inning game because it's, they're doing the double header here. Yeah. So, Got a couple, we got a few months before we have to worry about that again. But with that said, the Marlins right now, after eight games, they're sitting at 2-6, and six, which that record, at least to me, feels like it's a little deceiving. I mean, the Marlins offense has gone flat a few times already this year. But the reality is, with the exception of, I want to say, one of their losses, that 7-0 loss against the Cardinals, they were within reach in every single game. It was just either the offense didn't show up or they ended up the bullpen, the one mistake a bullpen pitcher threw got taken deep. But it seemed like like one thing here or there could have been the difference between two and six and potentially four and four or five and three.
1: And specifically with that game, the 7-0 game with, with the Cardinals, uh, they were really close because remember the game was tied in the in the sixth or seventh inning when Jaddy Molina hit a, a homer. Uh, of Pablo Lopez. And it was a pitch outside the strike zone. I mean, full credit goes to to Yaddy because that was not a bad pitch from from Pablo. Uh, But every game has been within reach. And I asked Miggy about this and and, and also Jesus Aguilar. And they both told me, we are one hit away from exploding. I mean, whenever that hit, uh, that ball falls into the outfield or whenever we get that homer that gets us going... Um, we're going to be, we're going to be dangerous and there's still a lot of, a lot to play, to play for, of course, the second week of the season. And we, we still can, can make, a we still can make huge things. And I, and I really agree with that because if you see the at-bats that these guys are having, they are really good at-bats Dickerson, Marte, Aguilar, um, you can say that about Brian Anderson and the way he's been hitting the ball and how unlucky he has been because Lone Depot Park is unnecessarily big. Yes, it uh, is. <laughs> but, uh, but, I mean, you you see those uh, little uh, glimpses that make you think, okay, uh, this team can can get something uh, going on uh, because of the advance they're having and because they've been... Uh, unlucky all season with that said the approach that I've been seeing from the guys with runners in scoring position has not been that good and that's the real problem that the Marlins have right now
0: yeah definitely they're hitting sub 200 with runners in scoring position but the thing is like you said they're putting the ball in play through eight games I'm trying to look up the numbers now they have 73 strikeouts through eight games they're toward the bottom of the league when it comes to the total number of strikeouts on by the offense that's that's good to see that the balls are going in play. They have had a lot of dumb luck that's gone against them. Just because a lot of their hard hit balls when they were at Lone Depot Park, they're hitting it between left center and right center. They're not pulling it toward the lines, which is where you yep. need to when you're hitting yep. balls into the outfield at that park. Because yep. everything, I mean, we've seen Giancarlo Stanton struggle to hit it in the center field at times there at this as former home ballpark.
1: When the when it was for twenty and the the center field wall was like ten feet high. <laughs> and he still had he still had uh you know straight center homers. But that's I mean you mentioned it, that's what you need to do at Lone Depot Park, you know, pull the ball. But that's why we're report recording this podcast and the guys that should be pulling the ball, I mean, are trying to pull it <laughs> because it's it's easier to, to say from from this uh, side and, and and i and i agree with you 100 and and i and i think they're they're trying but yes they they have to to change the the approach i also i also asked miggy uh the other night after one of the games of against the cardinals uh, about the approach that the guys are having with runners in scoring position and and he told me we are trying to do uh even more than what we can do because we're looking for hits and we're looking for hits all the time in that situation and of course that's that's the ideal thing to to happen to get hits but if we instead of looking for hits we we go you know thinking about a good at bat and and putting the ball in play then the the whole thing changes because we're gonna have a good at bat and eventually the hits will fall so uh that's what I think we're not doing, and what I think we we, we we can do, we're able to do. That's what Miggy said in, in Spanish.
0: Yeah. And then to wrap up this first segment here, uh, Brave Series now behind, or Mar- the Mets Series is now behind us. The Brave Series, the first time the Marlins are facing the Braves, it's coming up here Monday through Thursday at Truist Park. It's going to be, at least to me, this early, especially with the two and six start, this is going to be a measuring stick for this team. Because again, they're gonna again, the Braves, regardless of how their season started, they're still the gold standard of this division. They're three time defending defending champs. They made it to the NLCS where they lost to the Dodgers. And it's gonna be a pretty fun pitching match of the four days. I mean, we have we have Sandy Alcantara versus Juas Carguinova, Pablo Lopez against Max Fried, Nick Knider, who is a Georgia boy, getting his first start at basically at his hometown ballpark against Charlie Morton and then Trevor Rogers and Ian Anderson, two of the top rookies going into this to close it out. I feel like if the Marlins can even just go two and two in this four game series, I feel like that'll be a huge win for them as they go into probably the easier part of their schedule when they're going to have two series against the giants, a series with the Orioles, um, Milwaukee and DC on deck. If they can go two and two here and then take advantage of their schedule over the next, week and a half after that. This could give them that jump start they needed after the 2 and 6 start or it can be a
1: wake up call again as it Definitely. was the the 2020 NLDS. Uh, I think we can all agree on, on that 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 series was was a wake up call for them uh, where the Braves told them like hey if you want to be if you want to be, be the best you got to be the best and we're the best team in that division. Uh, period. And that's that's what I what I feel uh, this series is going to be for for the Marlins, and and you you mentioned that the pitching matchups are going to be really interesting. Wascardinola uh, might not sound like a great name, but he's 22, uh, young pitcher from Dominican Republic, very talented. So it could be a really interesting matchup on, on Monday with Sandy and and and, and then you're facing the top dogs from from that rotation with Freed, uh, an old Cy Young candidate. Uh, uncle Charlie and of course Ian Anderson so it's it's going to be great for the Martins to to test how good they are I I think they know how good they are but I think now it's it's time to to show it and if as you said if if they can get a couple of games out of Atlanta uh, go at least two and two of course the ideal thing is to go and and sweep Uh, that's very difficult to to do uh, for each team, because the, Mar- the the Braves are still facing really good pitching from from the Marlins, you know, Cantara, Pablo, Rogers, and and Nick Um But if you can get a couple of games, that definitely is going to give you confidence, especially if they can get really good, uh, a really good amount of runs out of Trees Park.
0: Definitely. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to answer some questions from the good old followers on Twitter. So we will be right back. So during the two-hour rain delay before the Marlins and Mets finally got their heads on right and decided to suspend Sunday's game, I reached out on Twitter and basically asked all of you guys out there to send in questions, whatever you have about the Marlins, whether it's prospects, whether it's about the current state of the team, whether it's about certain players, and we'll do our best to answer as many of them as we can. Uh, I narrowed it down to about five questions so far for the first go-round. And as we continue doing this, we'll try to expand this a little bit more on the show. So, Danny, our first question came from Alex. I want to say the pronunciation of his last name is Basea But if I, if I butchered your name, I apologize. I'll, you can reach out to me on Twitter and give me the full pronunciation. And I'll correct it next time. Okay. Uh, Alex's question was, did the Marlins drop the ball not signing a proven closer in the offseason? Which was one of the bigger questions that we had in general going into the off season. We knew the Marlins were going to overhaul the bullpen, especially when they didn't, didn't bring back Brandon Kinsler with his $4 million option. And after they made the moves they did and really Anthony Bass being the biggest name they had that they brought in from a late innings role, it made it seem like right out the gate, it was either going to be him or Yimmy Garcia, which Donnie loves Yimmy. We know how much he likes Yimmy. They worked to get. they were together in LA. And even though Yimmy was the setup guy last year, when I look back through the lineups that he faced, he was always facing either the top of the order or the heart of the order, even though he wasn't necessarily the closer of sorts. So, but we also understood that they signed Anthony Bass to a two year deal. He was going to be given that first chance just because he was signed the way he was signed. But they're at the point where Anthony Bass struggled his first two times out in save situations. Jimmy looked good. Donnie mentioned they're going to basically do a closer by committee. Richard Blyer will also get some looks. Dylan Floro, who's impressed, will also get some looks. But if it doesn't pan out, which, again, eight games is a small sample size, that's something we can definitely look back to this offseason when there were a lot of closers on the open market that they didn't decide to make a jump for.
1: A lot, a lot closers and a lot uh... – a lot of closers that were not that expensive. I mean, when you see guys like Shane Green who's still unsigned, or Sean little who signed with the with the Cincinnati Reds and, and he's been pitching really good in the in the last couple of um, couple of games, you, you can say, okay, maybe you could have gone with one of those relievers. I blame their Tampa Bay race for this because now everyone's wants to, now everybody everyone wants to play like like the race. We don't have a, an established closure. And and you can see Diego Castillo or Pete Fairbanks or um, whoever is thrown out there to, to close the games for them. And I think that the Marlins, especially in the last couple of years, they've been following this bullpenning uh, model where they don't have an established closer unless someone really stands, stands, stands up and say like, OK, uh, or shows up and, and starts pitching really good in the ninth inning and they name him as, as a closer. And I really see this with the Marlins. Of course, we saw Anthony Bass, and we know that he he has good potential. He has good, good stuff, uh, but he has failed twice. And not right now. I mean, if, if if you're a team like the Marlins and they're hoping to to be more competitive this year, you can you can be that that patient. And they have Yimi that has been pitching really good lately, really good since last year. You mentioned everything he he's been able to do. Um, but he's not a proven closer. And I think that the Marlins at some point during the season will start having closers by committee. And you're, you're, you're going to start to to see Bly or John Curtis or maybe Adam Simber in one ga- game, but that depends on who who they're facing and who's coming up uh, in the lineup from from those teams. So that's what I, what I think is going to happen. Kimang mentioned plenty of times that their number one priority was open. And I think they, had, they addressed that really good, uh, bringing guys like Simber or Flor or Curtis or Anthony Bass, but they need to to perform. I mean, that's, that's everything they, they need to do. I, I honestly I honestly have to say uh, that I'm still expecting a lot more from this bullpen, and I think they're going to be good. Uh, but, again, they have to, to perform.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the quotes I think Donnie mentioned it Sunday morning was, that they would love to have a guy with the proven track record of being a 40-save-a-year guy, but some teams don't have the luxury for that, and they're going to try to potentially find someone in-house to do that. And obviously, I don't think it's going to happen this year with this specific person, but if there's anybody from their young guns who can be that guy potentially down the road, if things work out, in my end, is Zach Pop. Just seeing he has the stuff to do it, obviously, he's still... Make, he's still very fresh in the big league level he's made two relief appearances and that's again he was two he's two years removed from Tommy John and these were his first two outings in live games that count since he underwent that surgery. but with the stuff that he has with that's the sinker and the slider, if he can find the command, I could I could see that happening down the road. Obviously this year that's not going to happen unless things go terribly terribly wrong I would think. But I feel like he does have that makeup to be that in-house guy who could mature and ultimately evolve into that closer guy that they want without having to spend the big buck, as, as I guess we could say.
1: Yeah, the, the other night we saw, uh, maybe it's maybe early to, to, to say this, but the other night we saw a really good Jordan Holloway. That's very true as well. I, that's, that's really true as well. And it's maybe you, you need to start giving him some time in the big leagues and in plenty other situations, seventh, eight, or ninth inning, uh, even if, if it's not a uh, like a save situation, but maybe there you can have you have a guy with uh, not a deep uh, repertoire, you know, you know, with with, the, with his pitches, but a guy that can throw above 98, 99, and maybe basically that's uh, really important now for, for closers. But guys, then can can mix it up a little bit with a with a breaking ball, and he has it. Maybe a good changeup. So I don't know. I I, I kind of see some potential potential from Jordan Holloway because in the last couple of years he's been working to to be a guy that throws strikes, and he had a lot of control issues uh, in in the past. He's working on that, and if he can finally. Uh, throw strikes consistently, he can. He has the potential to be uh, the closer of the future for the Miami Marlins.
0: Yeah, Holloway's definitely a really good option there as well. And it'll be interesting to see how the Marlins finally start to move from a lot of their guys who they always try to bring guys who were starters in, whether it was high school or college when they got drafted, and try to have them be a starter first in the minors and then adjust afterward. It'll yeah. be interesting to see when they start to make that pivot with guys like Holloway once he gets healthy and once he's strong and uh, George Guzman to see how they adapt with him. Obviously pop was a reliever through and through when he was at the university of Kentucky. So we knew he was going to be a bullpen guy when they took him, when they traded for him after the rule five draft, but those will be some interesting options to watch moving forward. Uh, The next question came from uh, Asher Wildman asking if Daniel Castano is a starting pitching option for the Marlins, which he is, Then, how far away or how long until Max Meyer is, how far along or how far away is Max Meyer from being a realistic option? I'll start with the Max Meyer part of it first. I would be very surprised if we see him in the big leagues at any point this season due to a couple simple facts. One, he still has yet to pitch in a professional baseball game at any level. Yep. Two, the Marlins didn't even have him pitch in spring training games when he was part of the spring training roster, which was even more limited than usual because of COVID-19. None of the guys who were drafted last last year were part of were part of Grapefruit League games at all. Not him, not Kyle Nicholas, not Jake either, not Zach McCambley. So I don't see the Marlins rushing him up, especially because they still have a lot of guys who are on the cusp that – well, are going to need to see time. We already we've already seen Trevor Rogers in the igniter. Daniel Castano was called up at uh, before Sunday's game as a chance to potentially be the first guy out of the bullpen once Curtis was done as an opener if the game actually happened, and he gives you another lefty option out there. Uh, Braxton Garrett is part of that second wave. Uh, even if they wanted to, you could potentially again. This the interesting to see how they do it between Paul Campbell as a Rule Five pick to potentially get some spot start or. Be an opener of sorts. John Curz can be an opener. Again, it goes back to what they're going to do with Holloway and when they make that pivot as well to see if they want to give him a chance to be to go three, four innings at one point. But Castano definitely is a starting pitching option, especially while we wait for how long it will be for Eliezer Hernandez and for Sixto to come back. And again, unless something very, very interesting and very dangerous happens to his rotation's depth. I would not envision Max Meyer up here at this point.
1: That's, that's the thing. Uh, and, and that last sentence was, is key. Like something really bad has to happen uh, to some of the guys in, in the rotation uh, to, you know for, for them to, to be here. That also can be if something goes really wrong and I don't see them doing this, even if everything goes really wrong, but it's, if they start trading guys like Eliezer or Pablo, uh I, I don't see that happening honestly. But that's the only way I can I can see a guy like Meyer pitching soon in 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 the big leagues. And with, with Castano, uh, they have a really valuable arm with him because he can start, he can give you as many innings as you need, uh five or four or five innings, he, he's gonna be able to to go up there and and, and throw them and, and to give you quality innings. But if you need that, uh, if you need Dan Cassano to throw you three innings out of the bullpen, he's going to be able to to do it. So he, it's very valuable when you when you have a guy like that that can pitch in in any situation, and especially when he can pitch good in any situation, uh, because you can bring him in when when it's a crucial game and you're winning, or when everything is going wrong and, and you have plenty of round disadvantage, and and he can be that guy that keeps you or keeps you in the game. So. Um, I, I really like what I'm what I'm seeing from from Castano. I remember asking Donnie last year how valuable the 2020 experience was going to be for him, and he said it was going to be crucial because now you see guys like Sandy or like Eliezer, especially Eliezer, because Eliezer was in a in a role similar to Castano right now. Yeah, remember he he came up as a starter, but then he spent a lot of time as a reliever and coming out of the bullpen and pitching two, three, four, four, innings, uh, four innings out of the bullpen. And Cassano is in a very similar situation. And now you see uh, Eliezer as one of the most reliable, uh, reliable pitchers in, in that rotation. Of course, he has the, the health issue with, with the arm and, and with the blisters. But um, he can he can do basically everything. And that's, that's the thing with, with Daniel. And that's what I'm seeing with him.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, next question is from Kyle. Uh, what's the latest on Sixto? Sixto, uh, uh, just to backtrack to everything back to the beginning of it, he suffered, He had some shoulder discomfort after throwing a sim game at the alternate training site right before opening day. Uh, there really is no update at this point. I, to my knowledge, he hasn't started throwing yet, and once he does, he's going to have to get built back up again. The Marlins were adamant back in spring training when he had his couple setbacks then that they wanted him comfortably throwing at least five innings before he's on the big league roster. And it took him about three weeks to get to that point once he finally got back into his groove and his routine during spring training. So once he finally starts throwing again, it's going to be another three to three and a half weeks, potentially another month after that, that we'll probably see him. And considering we're already in mid-April, that's probably leaning towards somewhere early June would probably be the absolute earliest. And I don't think the Marlins are going to rush him. They really can't afford to rush him, especially after with Eliezer down and with Edward Cabrera, another prospect, also down. He hasn't done anything, to my knowledge, at this point either. You really don't want to have this guy go through another setback, especially when you know how valuable he's going to be, hopefully at the end of this year and also long-term down the road. Remember Donnie
1: said, plenty of times in spring training. We're going to need everybody, uh, you know, here, up here uh, in, in the big leagues. And, and everybody is neither Garrett, Castano, um, plenty of guys. And that's what we're seeing right now. It's it's a shame that we're seeing this at the beginning of the season. But as you mentioned, you can't afford losing 6-2 or having or, or rushing 6-2. Like for what are you going to do that? Because I know you want to compete. But is it really necessary to to risk everything now? You're not in, in on a situation like the Mets or the Phillies or the Nationals are right now. You know, seeing, for example, the NL East, or if you go to, to the American League, like the Yankees or the Race, uh, you know, fighting. And, and it's almost an obligation for them to, to be in the playoff this year. I don't see that with the Marlins. And, and I, I don't see why they will rush him. And I agree with you. Maybe we can think about, June the earliest for for Sixto and if not I think we're just going to see Sixto pitching all the way through the end of the season whenever he, he makes his debut in 2021 because we already we, we know that he is in a on innings limit and if you see Sixto coming back in June who knows July uh then I don't see I don't I don't see any reason to to just stop six to and not let him pitch all the way through through September. I mean, we of course we don't know what's going to happen with with the team and in what situation they're going to be. If they're going to be fighting for a playoff spot or if they're going to be in the playoffs or something like that. But uh, I don't I don't see any reason to to rush him. I I did said with Oscar Prieto in swings in in the swings and missions podcast in, in Espanol, that I would like to see six to pitch in uh, in winner winner ball to to maybe build up and, and have some some innings some innings to uh, you know to, to work just just to to do that you know to to be able to go five and and, and six innings I think that might help and you know to I mean thinking about uh, 2022 screen training and the whole regular season
0: definitely oh, we've got two more questions the first one from Nico how long until Anthony Bender is called up. So Anthony Bender was a non-roster invitee to spring training. He's a relief pitcher, has a pretty good story, was in indie ball the last year or so. He looked really good in spring training. I won't, I won't deny that. His fastball is good. He has a good two-pitch mix. He could be sort of like in that Zach Pop scenario, could be a potential late-inning guy long-term, high-leverage guy long-term. But again, you also have to remember, he was a non-roster invitee. He's not on the 40-man roster. As good as he is, it's also really good to know that he's a depth guy waiting in the wings, and he's also. I need to actually double check that. I don't think he's at. I don't remember if he's at the alternate training site or not. He, I believe he is, but yeah, yeah. He actually uh, give me yeah, yeah, double I, check I, on that. I,
1: let's double check, but I think he is on the on the alternate yeah. training site.
0: Yeah. So, ETS roster. Here we go. Uh, yeah, he is at the Arkansas, training site, so he is eligible to be to come up in the first month. He also is not part of his taxi squad, so at the very least, we're not seeing him during the Braves series. But I like the guy, but you also have to remember all of the bullpen options the Marlins have already brought up, the fact that they're going to have to carry both Paul Campbell and Zach Pop for the duration of the season because they're Rule 5 guys, and just the limited number of spots you have. There's going to be some shuffling during, in the bullpen. That always happens. You never have... The same eight guys or nine guys or how many guys they're going to carry throughout the season. No, of but course not. I don't think they're going to rush him in yet, just for the simple fact that doing so means you're adding him to the forty man roster, and you're going to have to make a lot of oh, a lot of moves at that point. And it just can putting him on too early could open a can of worms if the Marlins don't want to start opening up yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, hundred uh, percent. I agree, hundred percent with you, and and I think he's going to have. His chance um, at some point during the season, but as you mentioned, I mean, there's plenty of that for for the Marlins pitching, especially in the bullpen. And I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still think the Marlins wants want, want to see something else um, from Ben during the minors, and he's gonna have his chance, whatever he starts, if it's in Double A AA or Triple A, with uh, in Jacksonville in with Al managing. Uh, I think he's gonna have pretty good chances there, and that whenever they they see it, uh, they're gonna evaluate. I mean, if he's gonna be ready or not, because as good as he was on spring training, still was sprint training. So uh, I think we have to be really careful with that. I, I like everything I, I saw from 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 him, but I I still think he he can be he can face maybe much more competitive uh, lineups in in AAA.
0: Yep. No doubt about it. And our last question from David D. Torres. Out of the current crop of outfielders, Dickerson, Marte, Duvall, Cooper, Birdie, Sierra, Brinson, while it's a lot of outfielders, how many do you expect to be on the team these next couple of years, especially considering the amount of organization organizational depth, hopefully coming in, in that time between Blade, Sanchez, Burdick, Meisner, Conine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the position outside of starting pitching where the Marlins depth up and down the organization is just absurd. We know that they brought in a lot of the guys who are here now, Dickerson, Marte, Duval specifically, to basically be that holdover group until they feel like the prospects are ready. They obviously had to rush up Jesus Sanchez and Monty Harrison last year after the COVID outbreak just to get some extra bodies out there because they needed the bodies. But when it comes to the group that's currently here, it's going to be interesting how they approach the offseason because, again, Corey Dickerson's contract expires after this year. Marte's expires after this year. Duvall, they have the option. They have the club option for 2022. And if he can finally find some some steadiness at the plate, he struggled early on, but we know the power potential. Who knows? Duvall could potentially still be here. Cooper is still under team control for two more years. Birdie hasn't had arbitration yet. Sierra and Brinson are going to be interesting, especially now that they optioned Brinson on Sunday. Both Brinson and Sierra are out of options. So Sierra has to stay on the roster the rest of the year. Brinson can move up and down this year, but starting next year, if he's not on the big league roster, you have to to come from the 40 man and have him go through waivers. So it's going to be a mix of between how much the Marlins like the veterans that they have and how ready they think the prospects are. So, I mean, of the group, the only one who I feel confident enough saying that I think he'll be an opening day starter in 2022 is JJ Bollet. He's the only one I feel hundred percent confident saying I could see him in right field when the Marlins start the season in 2022. The others are still, I need to see a little bit. I need to see how things work out during the minor league season this year.
1: Of course you, you we need to see that and, and we also need to see what's going to happen during the 2021 to 2022 off season. Yes. Because plenty of, plenty of things can still happen. I, I don't see, for example, the Marlins reaching uh, an agreement with Starling Marte this, this, during this season. But why not think that they might offer him a contract after 2021? I mean, that's something that would – I mean, for me, would be a priority after the season ends. I mean, whatever the outcome is for, for the Marlins, I think that they have a uh, a really good guy yeah, in, in, in Starling Marte, knowing that, yeah, he's 32 but his athletic conditions are really good, as good as anyone in the league. So uh, that, that might be something, you know, to have a, a great center fielder for two to three years, That that is something uh, really good, even though you have that much depth in, in, in your system. But knowing that also in, 2020, in 2022, you're going to have the DH in, in the National League. So that opens you, uh, you know, have more possibilities, you know, you have more options there. And, and you still need to see what happens during the minor league season. And he's, I mean, he's already a proven major leaguer. So so I agree with you with, with uh, you know, on that side with JJ as a standing great fielder for, for 2022. We still have to see what happens with Peyton Burdick or Cameron Meissner or even Gerard Encarnacion. If he's going to be an outfielder, if he's if going to be a first baseman, what's going to happen with Aggie? What's going to happen with Good? What's gonna happen with Edwin Diaz, for example? I mean, a lot
0: of moving parts.
1: A lot of moving parts. Uh, maybe a trade involved. Is if they trade for a starting pitcher, like a established starting starting pitcher? I mean, who knows? Plenty of things still can can happen, and we're uh, three weeks away from from minor league season to to start. So that's maybe gonna uh, clarify or make us doubt even more. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, again, the lost 2020 minor league season really puts a wrench in trying to evaluate all of these guys just because we didn't get a chance to actually see a lot of them break out. Blede, J.J. Bleday was supposed to have his first full year last year. We were hoping to see a jump from guys like Connor Scott and Cameron Meisner and Peyton Burdick. And then, again, you still have Jesus Sanchez and Monte Harrison at the AAA level. And Yeah, it's, exactly. there's just There's a lot of guys here, and – Again, I feel like this is actually going to help them long term having all this. So, the fact that you don't have to necessarily rush a Peyton Burdick per se to get up there because he has, they have some other guys who are a little bit closer to being ready. And just on the and Cardinal spot, I just, I would not be surprised if by 2022, they have him and Lewin Diaz alternating between first base and designated hitter, especially yeah. after seeing what we saw from. Gerard getting a lot of first base reps during spring training. It gives you a righty and a lefty. So you have semi platoon options there and you have some power and, and really and, outside of Leyland, who do they have first base wise
1: and exactly. And Gerard looked really good in first base. I mean, we, we, we have to to point that out because he, he was really good at, at first and, and we were surprised Donnie was surprised too uh, when, when we asked him for, for Gerard. So uh, I think, yeah, they have they have they have a a problem that every manager wants to have and every organization wants to have. Uh, and as Jitter said, I mean, it's better to be sitting in spring saying, "Oh man, we have so many players. Who are we who are we putting in this position?" That oh man, we we don't have any players. <laughs> I mean, where are we gonna uh, put in this position or, or something like that.
0: All right. And I think that wraps us up. This was fun, Danny. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you so
1: much, Jordan. I mean, anytime you, you, you need it. Uh, it's always a pleasure for me to, you know, to, to be here and to talk baseball with you.
0: Yeah. And on that note, that's going to wrap up this week's episode of fish Bite. We'll be back again next week and we'll have a lot more to discuss as the season keeps going with that. I'm Jordan McPherson. He's Danny Alvarez. Thanks so much, everyone.